this is Dr. Adrian Lepristi. Join me for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, the triad of sleep, stress and immune dysfunction on July 13, where I'll lead you through the various psychological, biological, lifestyle and environmental causes of sleep disturbances. I will also showcase the assessment tools that practitioners can use to identify poor sleep, as well as the evidence-based treatment options that I use every day for stressed, anxious and sleepless patients. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. Welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Emma Sutherland, and joining us on the line today is Natasha Torero. This podcast is part of a series we are doing on the topic of endometriosis, and today we'll be discussing the patient experience. I'd like to begin, though, by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we are recording today. I would also like to pay my respects to Elders past and present. Now, Natasha is going to be sharing with us her personal experience of endometriosis. She is an endo warrior and also the New South Wales coordinator for Endometriosis Australia. Welcome to FX Medicine, Natasha. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Emma. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Now, this is such a big topic and endometriosis affects one in nine women And it takes an average of six and a half years for a woman to be diagnosed. And I find it's often under-recognised and misdiagnosed. And incredibly, for a woman with endometriosis, her disease costs her a staggering $30,000 per year. And endometriosis costs the Australian healthcare system around $9.7 annually. Now, most of those costs are driven by a loss of productivity and also pain. And having a specialty in women's health, I've worked with many women with endometriosis. I have seen the impact of the long diagnosis times, the, oh, but you look fine attitudes of family and friends and look, the silent suffering and the sky high pain thresholds of these women. Now today, as part of our endometriosis series, let's pull back the curtain and really understand the impact that endometriosis has on women. Natasha, can we begin with you telling us about your journey with endometriosis? You know, when did you first start experiencing symptoms? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's been a long journey. I um, My symptoms really started when I was a teenager, probably 14 or 15. And then I was 26 when I was diagnosed. I'm now uh, about turn 30. So, you know, around 12 years with symptoms. Mm diagnosis. And a lot of that was because I really normalized my symptoms. I, you know, thought that extreme period pain was normal. Mm. And I thought that I was just one of the unlucky ones who had it. Yeah, it's such, unfortunately, it's such a common thing that we hear clinically. And, you know, what symptoms did you experience? Like, can you get granular on on what your experience symptomized? Like, obviously, pain is such a big one. But what else was there? Yeah, absolutely. So I always had really bad pain with my period. So I was consistently take have to take a day off school, uni or work mm. on the first day of my period, like like clockwork every month. I also had significant fatigue. So at least one week every month, I was really tired, really run down, really lethargic mm. and, you know, still am. I've also had and continue to have IBS symptoms, which often go hand in hand for um, people with endo. Yeah. Also that 
other pain as well as the pelvic pain, so lower back pain and hip pain, that kind of thing. And I think it's really, yeah, it's really affected me a lot, but not in a way that I necessarily understood or appreciated at the time, particularly when I was younger. Mm. I mean, childhood friends remember me as someone who was always in pain, which I didn't really recognize in myself. Like that wasn't a way that I would have characterized myself. Mm. And, you know, friends from my early 20s would often comment that I was always sick, but that wasn't something that I really recognized at the time. Well, I guess it was so normal for you. And, and that's what we see, this normalization of these intense symptoms for the sufferer. Mm. Now, a 2022 paper on chronic pelvic pain reported that 48% of women saw at least one allied health practitioner. Does that sound about right for you? I mean, I know you work with Endo Australia, you have endometriosis yourself. Does that sound right? Yeah, it does. It's certainly consistent with my personal experience. So I have two osteopaths, a pain physio, a pelvic physio, um, a dietitian. Mm. I'm probably missing a few from that list, but it's not an uncommon care team composition for people with chronic pelvic pain because it's not a simple condition. It's not something that's simple to treat and um, it presents differently in every in every patient. So people really need to be guided by their symptoms. And how did you go about creating that collaborative team around you? Because that's not easy to find the right people that can then work collaboratively. Yeah, absolutely. So I put together a team of professionals, basically with my GP. Mm -hmm. And that multidisciplinary approach has been critical for me, really. Mm. I have a pain management specialist, a pain physio, a pain management osteo, a general osteo, a pelvic health physio, a dietitian, a clinical psychologist who specialises in chronic pain. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, endo and chronic pain is so complex. It really requires that multidisciplinary approach so that you can treat it. One thing I would say is that not all of those things are necessary for every person. Mm. Um, or for every patient. That team works for me based on my symptoms, what I can afford to pay for, Mm. um, but not everyone will have the same needs or the same symptoms or the same capacity to pay, obviously. So people should, like I said before, really be guided by their symptoms and their situation when putting together their own team. Mm. But do research, speak to your GP about what's out there. And, um, you know, the Endometriosis Australia website also has a lot of information about what complementary therapies might be helpful um, so that you can be, you know, sort of put together your own team. Yeah, I just think it's invaluable that, you know, women feel heard, they feel understood, they feel listened to, and and having that collaborative care team can really go a huge step forward uh, in a psychological aspect to helping that person. Yeah, absolutely. Mine all talk about me behind my back, which is... (laughs) Great for me and my care. (laughs) I love that they do communicate, though. That is just so fantastic. I don't think it happens enough. Yeah, no, it's it's something that definitely needs to be happened more, and that's really uh, important for people with complex complex conditions that you know require that multi multidisciplinary approach. Mm, Yes, exactly. And have you undergone a laparoscopy? Have you had surgery? Like, can you tell us more about your experience in that space? Yeah, so I've had one surgery Mm. and that was a number of years ago now. And now I'm in a stage where I'm trying to, I'm treating my endometriosis with medication Mm. and other complementary therapies so that I, to the idea being that I shouldn't have to have surgery again um, soon. 
Okay. My heart should um, want to basically lengthen the amount of time between surgeries. I mean, some um, people with endo will have surgery. I mean, I've heard of people having surgery every two years. Mm. Um, and it's not uncommon for women with um, endo to have multiple surgeries over their lifetime um, because you can remove the diseased tissue, but it still can and often does grow back. Mm, yes, of course. And And look, I think the people can mistakenly assume that if you've had surgery, then your endometriosis is cured. So how would you explain this to somebody? Yeah, that's a really good question. It's definitely a frustrating question or a frustrating comment to come up against. Mm. And it's difficult to explain because in their, in other people's minds, it makes sense that surgery is a cure. But truthfully, like there is no cure for endo. Mm. Surgery is a treatment option. It's not a cure. Oh, look, I think that sentence that you just said right there is it in a nutshell. Like that is exactly what it is. And it's changing people's understanding of surgery in in endometriosis. Absolutely. Now, how does surgical scar tissue impact your daily life? Well, it's it can be a bit difficult to attribute any symptoms to scar tissue specifically. And mm. for me, I've only had one surgery, so I probably don't have a huge amount of star, uh, scar tissue. Yeah. So Pain and other symptoms could be from scar tissue or new disease or even just the central sensitization of the nervous system that happens in someone who has had long-term pain. Mm. Uh, but generally, endo has meant that I've had to make lots of changes to my daily life. For example, I used to work five days a week from an office and also go to events and social gatherings multiple times a week. Yeah. My life has had to change a lot to accommodate chronic pain and the fatigue that comes with it, such that I only work one day a week from the office now and mm. um, from home the rest of the time. And I can only really leave the house for a couple of hours at a time, once or twice a week. I've had to make so many changes, but for the better and for the better of my health. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, the impact is so enormous, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What are your strategies for dealing with flare-up days? Because these these flare-ups of endometriosis can be crippling. But, you know, what are your strategies for dealing with those? They can be really difficult those days or those periods of time. And the strategies kind of depend on how severe the flare-up is. So that mm. I can have flare-ups where I can sort of work through it and I acknowledge that I'm in a flare-up and I just move a bit slower in terms of, you know, how much I can do and how much I can commit to. Might have to cancel some social gatherings or et cetera. Yeah. Um, but then there can be other flare-ups where I'm completely bedridden and I can't move and I need someone to come over to bring me food or something like that. But basically, I mean, the strategies are really lots of lots of rest mm. combined with some gentle exercise. And I know the exercise can sound counterproductive yeah. or counterintuitive, but it works. Definitely heat packs, maybe a TENS machine, mm. a warm magnesium bath if I can manage it, if I'm yeah. feeling stable enough to actually, you know, run a bath and get into it and out of it and all that mm. kind of thing. Yeah. And help from loved ones. You know, I might ask someone to come and keep me company or just yammer at me on the phone to distract <laughs> me. Yeah. That can also help. But I think the most important thing during flare-ups is self-compassion. It's so easy to beat yourself up about the plans that you have to cancel or the work that you're missing or the housework that you're not able to do. Yeah. And honestly, the best thing that chronic illness has taught me is how to be kind to myself. Oh, I tell you what, I, I think, you know, there, there's so many layers to endometriosis and this mental and emotional layer is is so big. And the, yeah. the art, I mean, it is called an art. The art of self-compassion has never been more important uh, than in a case like this. 
Yeah, absolutely. The mental health implications for people with endo, but also chronic illness generally are just so huge. Mm, Yeah. Now, interesting you talked about the work side of things because a research paper from February this year showed that due to COVID and the resulting more flexible hours and being able to work from home, that women with endometriosis felt they were more productive. Now, I mean, has COVID affected your experience or were you sort of already set up in that way? Yeah, so I'm really lucky that I work for a large organisation with a really good employee support system um, and we had flexible working um, and remote working before COVID. Mm. Um, What I found for me, though, is that with COVID and with everybody else working flexibly, that really helped with a better understanding of what I was going through prior to COVID Mm. because previous to that, I'd be the only person in a meeting working remotely and everyone else would be in the room. They'd be talking over each other or, you know, having the usual conversations that you have when everybody's in a room together. And that was quite isolating, being on the phone, being the only person um, working remotely. Mm. But then during COVID, everybody was working remotely and it really, it really enhanced my workplace experience as well. Um, So while I had that flexibility, it's become more effective thanks to COVID. Yeah, and I love that perspective because I hadn't thought about it from that angle that, you know, you were not the only one sitting on Zoom alone anymore. Everybody is on there with you. So yeah. that that is fantastic. It creates a much more, it doesn't put you in that silo. It takes you out of it and makes everyone in this, you know, the same in that way. Yeah, it was a really, it was a really great normaliser in yeah. that way. Yeah. And, you know, for family and friends that may have, you know, someone in their inner circle that has endometriosis, what are some tips for the best ways that they can support uh, that woman? Mm. Well, it's funny that you asked that. I actually wrote an article for the Endometriosis Australia blog last year called Seven Ways to Support Someone with Endo. Uh, I think some of the key ones, though, are to um, ask what you can do to help because often we won't think to, we're so overcome with all the things that we have to manage and the pain, mm. it can be really overwhelming and we don't necessarily think to ask for help. We think about we're so caught up in what we have to do that we don't think about what other people might be able to do. So if you ask what you can do to help, mm. that could be a really good circuit breaker for people to realise that there's there's help available and they don't have to do everything themselves. The other things are to just listen Real, a lot of the time, like I said before, the, the mental health impacts are so, so widespread that often you just need someone to listen. You don't, they don't need to fix a problem. Just listen about what you're going through. And another one would be to learn about endo and about what our experience is like mm. and just ask questions because that makes us, lets us know that you care and that you want to know more and want to really understand what we're going through. Yeah. And and I love that. Like, ask how you can help. That is such a big one. It could be something simple, like picking up something from the shops for you or, you know, dropping off something or chatting to you while you're on the phone. I mean, it's just sometimes so simple to do a yes. little thing that can make a big difference. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. And definitely, I like that to just listen, uh, not to fix it. Because when we see someone we love in pain, we naturally want to fix things. But this is a situation that you you can't fix. And so just to be present is such a gift in itself. Yes. Now, Natasha, can you describe how 
endometriosis is an invisible illness because a lot of women come in to see me and they'll say, oh, you know, I've been diagnosed with endometriosis, but I can't see anything, right? So Mm -hmm. how would you explain this to somebody? Yeah. I mean, I think it's getting less and less invisible thanks to advocacy and education Mm. um, over time, but it's still largely invisible because like you say, you can't see it. It's not like a broken leg where there's some external indication that you're struggling or, you know, there's something wrong. Mm. I think the taboo nature of periods also plays a role. There's still this element of secret women's business in play. Mm. And so I think the easiest way to make the invisible visible is just to explain to them what you're going through. Yeah. Just to let them in on your experience. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of people would be shocked. I mean, I'm always shocked at the incredible pain thresholds of women with endometriosis, you know, and and when I'm in clinic with a patient, I'm asking very detailed questions. And even if I ask her to rate on a pain scale of one to 10, she may still say to me, no, it's about a three out of 10. And, you know, on somebody else's pain scale, that's probably a 10 out of 10. So it's still sometimes hard to get that information. But the pain thresholds are such a big white flag for me. Absolutely. Yeah. It really changes your perception of pain. Yeah. On a day-to-day basis, because a lot of the time you're living with it day-to-day. So your normal pain every day might be a five, but that's just normal for you. Yeah. And so actually, I wanted to just ask at this point, you know, how do you mentally and psychologically deal with that pain? So I, are there strategies you've learned that that increase your resilience to that pain? I mean, pain is physical, but it's also mental and emotional. Yeah, absolutely. So chronic pain is has a very strong link with mood. So um, your pain gets worse as your mood is worse. Mm-hmm. So I work with um, a clinical psychologist who specialises in chronic pain to sort of teach me strategies to make sure that my mood is good and I'm dealing with all the things mentally that I need to be dealing with so that I'm not increasing my pain by accident. Obviously, I wouldn't do it on purpose. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. By, you know, being stressed or not resolving things with, you know, my mood or with people in my life or whatever it is. Mm. So there's, I mean, look, there's lots of ways to to manage it, but like some key ones that people can do at home, mindfulness, getting enough rest, making sure that you're incorporating rest that's not only physical rest, but mental rest, social rest, sensory rest, like rest isn't just physical. That's how we tend to think of it, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, that's a really, really salient point. I love that one because rest is, you know, we do just think of it, oh, we'll just lie on the couch or rest, but it's actually switching your mind off from sensory overload, from stimulus that can really play on the nervous system. Absolutely. You might be physically still and physically resting, but you could still be engaging in a discussion with somebody online or over the phone that's still stimulating you mentally. While you might be physically resting, you're not mentally resting. So I think, yeah, making sure that you're getting a combination of different types of rest Mm. is really important. And mindfulness and meditation is a really good way to do that. Yeah. And and I, I think it's yeah, one of those points where, you know, we tend to be busy, 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 modern day life, but allowing yourself to not be busy and to rest on all those levels could be quite challenging for a lot of people. It's definitely a skill that you have to practice. It doesn't come naturally to to most people, particularly uh, these days with 
you know, wanting to be, there's, everyone's got a side hustle and, you know, yeah. just to do everything all the time and be everything to everybody. Uh, but yeah, it's a real, it's, it's something that is a really valuable skill to learn. Yeah. And you know, that analogy of the bucket, if you're topping up your rest bucket, then your pain becomes more bearable. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Now, the government has in place a Medicare item called a chronic disease management plan, and this means that patients can receive rebates of $50 for up to five appointments with practitioners such as dietitians or pelvic floor physios. So as a chronic disease, I mean, endometriosis has untold financial burden on women, as we spoke of at the beginning. What is your experience here? Has this been of help to you? Yeah, so I do have that chronic disease management plan, which my GP and I um, review every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about it ends up being about two hundred and fifty dollars a year that you get back from Medicare for those appointments from those specific practitioners who are named in your plan that you can um, that you can then review every year with your GP. Mm. And I'm really lucky to have and you know above average income and to be able to afford to in some ways spare no expense on my treatment, mm. but. I basically burnt through all of my savings to do that. You know, I really had to tighten my belt in other areas to make that work. And it really is, like you said earlier, a struggle for people. It is the number of appointments, medications, days off work that lost productivity. Mm. It's just the whole picture of, of financial stress and economic burden that chronic disease generally and endo specifically puts on people is just, it's it's really significant. It's huge. Yeah, and and for you know, all the clinicians out there listening, please make sure that you tell your patients about this chronic disease management plan because anything that we can do to help ease that financial burden is going to be you know absolutely essential. Yeah, I think there is some education that needs to be done around around the availability of that because a lot of people wouldn't know, mm. and if GPs should be actively telling their patients about it. Yes, yes, exactly. But you know, we can all do our part in this education. So uh, let's all talk about that one with our patients. Now, there is a research project underway called Endo at Work, and it's being conducted by Endometriosis Australia in partnership with several universities. And in another episode in this series, I will be interviewing lead researcher Professor John Wardle about this really exciting project. But early data is showing that one in three women have been passed over for promotion due to their endometriosis. How has your experience been or what are the stories that you hear from other women in in this area? I mean, up front, I have to acknowledge um, my privilege that I work for a really large organisation that has um, been really, really good to me in Mm. this way. So I actually have fibromyalgia, which is widespread chronic pain in addition Mm. to So. Um, as I mentioned before, I've been able to access flexible working arrangements, flexible hours so that I can work remotely, which makes it so much easier to manage my pain. Mm. And so working from home is a godsend for me. But I'm also lucky that my job is a desk job. I'm not on my feet um, very much. Um, so I can just sit there with a heat pack and sometimes work through the pain if I need to. Mm. But I'm teacher or a nurse or in a job where I have to be on my feet all the time. And truthfully, a lot of people with endo or chronic pain have to quit their jobs or they're let go from Mm. their job simply because they can't do them anymore. They can't do them with the level of pain that they're experiencing or the other symptoms that they're experiencing. And some of the stories that I've heard are heartbreaking. It is really, really difficult for people. 
And I think what you're highlighting here is that the nature of somebody's occupation will have a profound effect on how they this impacts them because, as you said, if you have a physical job, that's going to be really even more uh, challenging and difficult and sometimes impossible. And the fact that women have to uh, lose their jobs or, you know, say, no, I can't keep going, it breaks my heart. It's awful. Yeah, completely. And, you know, for some people that might mean that while dealing with a diagnosis and the symptoms and, you know, putting together a care team, they also may have to, if they need to, change careers. I like that such a huge addition to what they're already going through. Now, in aiming to treat your endometriosis, you know, over the years, what's worked or what didn't work for you? Now, I know you've probably tried lots of different things and uh, I'd love to hear about that. Yeah. So there've been some medications that haven't Hmm. worked, but with medication, it's so often trial and error. And, you know, one person will react completely differently to the same medication as somebody else. Yeah. I think the really impactful treatments have been, for me, have been that multidisciplinary care team and the lifestyle changes that I've made to live better and to live differently to accommodate my illness. Yeah. And then also the support from family and friends. I mean, it's not a treatment in a in a traditional sense, but it's a treatment in the sense that it has a huge impact on how I can manage day to day. Yeah, absolutely. It could you know, literally make or break your day um, yeah. from from that side of things. And, you know, did you make any dietary changes? Did you delve into natural medicine for your endometriosis? Tell me about that. Yeah, I have. So I've worked with a dietitian and a naturopath mm. uh, to make dietary changes to make sure that I'm getting the vitamins and minerals that I need from my food, but also from supplements. Yeah, And that's been really important. And it's not just about People often think about diet as diets and short-term fixes, but it's really been about a long-term kind of permanent change in how I think about food as nutrition and as being fulfilling for my body and for my needs and so that I can achieve my goals rather than a ticker box. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I've tried, yeah, I went through a program of trial and error with dietitian and Mm. and, um, naturopath to go through you know, figure out what was triggering me, figure out what was making my symptoms worse and all that kind of thing. So it's it's definitely valuable doing that. Yeah, and, and what were the triggers for you? Oh, specific foods I discovered. So like, for example, carbonated drinks. Mm. Yeah. Just, they just don't agree with me, so I just completely stay away from them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's just one, but there are a whole bunch of kind of little specific ones, like I can't eat cabbage or asparagus and things like that. There was kind of no rhyme or reason I discovered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it took a lot of trial and error and a lot of time to figure out what was doing what and what works and what doesn't. And do you think, you know, doing that all on your own and trying to figure that out all on your own, I'd imagine it would be so hard. And this is where the care of you know, a good clinician can be so helpful to try and shortcut that process because, you know, there's long times to diagnosis, you know, treatment options, it's a trial and error uh, approach. It, it just maybe would help shortcut that process for, for people. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I could have gone through the dietary changes and those trial and error things without the um, the help of my dietitian and naturopath. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do it alone. It was too complex. It really needed that specialty understanding and oversight to get it right. Yeah, and to make the changes also without harming myself. 
Yeah, exactly. And and as you've really uh, highlighted, individualization is so key. So for you, cabbage is a no, but maybe for another woman, it could be a yes. You know, there's there's no blanket rules here. It's always about trying to find out for the individual what is causing inflammation and, and reactivity within the body. Yeah, absolutely. And then also the extent to which you're actually able to cut it out. Yeah, so, you know, if I had to cut out garlic and onion from my diet, I basically wouldn't be able to eat anything that my family cooks because it's such a staple <laughs> of our cultural food. Yeah, 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 of course. Actually, Monash Uni have recently done a research call out for the endo diet study, and it's looking at assessing women with endometriosis plus gut symptoms, looking at how they're affected by a low FODMAP diet. Interestingly, they're also studying changes to both the gut and the vaginal microbiome. Now, gut health, how has that impacted you? Yeah, so I mean, I have IBS symptoms as well as as I said, kind of go hand in hand with endo for a lot of people. Mm. And so, yeah, no, gut health has been a real focus of the work that I've done with my dietitian and naturopath. Mm. And so I did go through a, a low FODMAP diet elimination to figure out whether there were any specific FODMAPs that were triggering me. And that's how I identified some of those triggers. But it was, yeah, it was a really difficult and long process. Yeah, it is a lengthy process. And, and I wish it was easier, but it, it simply is, isn't. But then once you know, you know, that's the thing. And now March in 2021, Ranscog published the first Australian clinical guideline on the diagnosis and management of endometriosis. And they outlined three priority areas. There was awareness and education, then clinical management and care. And then finally, there was research. Now, this is a big step forward for patients. How do you think this might change the patient experience? Look, I think any improvement in awareness, education, management, care and research is going to be positive for the community and for patients. Mm. I mean, the more awareness there is, the less in the dark and the less we suffer in silence. The better care there is from a clinical perspective, you know, the faster we'll get achieved diagnosis mm. and the better overall ex patient experience there will be. And I think, look, there has been some, I think, a little bit of criticism of these of these guidelines. You have to start somewhere and we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And this is good. This is progress and it's foundation from which to build for better outcomes for patients. Yeah, look, I definitely think it's a step forward. I personally, when you're looking at the breakdown of how the funds are allocated for for this, I would like to see, I mean, of course, research is super important. You know, that was around $16 million on research. But then clinical care and management was around 660000 So I look at that discrepancy and because I guess I look at things through a lens of clinical, you know, experience, it's this clinical management and care that's the human part of it where the, there is a woman sitting across the table from you and yeah if we could get more funds into that clinical management I'd be so happy. Yeah I think more funds are needed in every column there. Yeah but I guess yes this is a start and it's raising awareness. I mean I have to say that more women that come in to see me ask the question now do you think I could have endometriosis rather than me saying to the patient maybe you have endometriosis and we need to look into it. So I guess that alone tells me that you know education and awareness is happening. Absolutely that's progress because <laughs> you know Years ago, I mean, certainly when I was when I was in my early twenties, I'd never heard of endometriosis. Mm. 
Yeah, it's not uncommon, not uncommon at all. I mean, is there anything else you'd like our audience to understand or to know about endometriosis from that patient perspective? I mean, you've highlighted some really interesting things for us all to think about, but is there anything else you'd like us to know? I think the key thing that I would want to add is there's no cookie-cutter patient. Hmm. There's no cookie-cutter endo patient. Uh, everyone's different. Every, the disease will present differently in every person. So listen to the experiences of the women and the people around you who have endometriosis and um, just try and understand. Just because you know some person at work, is, their experience isn't going to be the same as your sister or your mother or your, um, or your niece. It's going to be, um, it's going to be different for everybody. Yeah, and, and I, I really love that. Um, Individualisation is absolutely key in everything we do from a patient care-centred model, which is what we are all aiming to do. Thank you so much for joining us today, Natasha. The key points I've taken away are that surgery is a treatment option. It is not a cure. And the art of self-compassionate's importance for women with endometriosis and that individualisation, there is no cookie cutter uh, with this disease. Everybody is different. But thank you so much for sharing all of those insights from the patient perspective with endometriosis. I think they're you know, quite profound. And you know, my hope is that with the increased amount of research occurring, that early and appropriate symptom management plans, as well as reduced diagnosis times, will actually start occurring. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hi, this is Emma Sutherland. Join us on FX Medicine next week, where I'll be talking to Professor John Wardle about his research on endometriosis. This is part of a series on endometriosis, where I will interview a patient, a researcher, and a clinician to hear perspectives from all angles. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app and follow us on social media to make sure you never miss an episode.